title of the lesson today is Liberated. Um, in Exodus chapter 14, we've covered uh, the plagues. Nine plagues were covered last week. Um, the tenth is the uh, basically the, the, the firstborn sons were all killed. And God had the Israelites place blood over the doorframe so that the blood would cover over his people. And unfortunately, everyone in Egypt, all the firstborn sons, died. The Bible says from Pharaoh's firstborn son down to the firstborn son of the slave or the one who was even in prison, um, firstborn of even the cattle perished as well. And so God brought that plague upon them to get Pharaoh to bring God's people out. Because of that, God gave them two holidays. One was the Passover, and the second was the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, to mark the sons being passed over and their release from Pharaoh. This afternoon, we come upon an event that would be talked about, sung about, and remembered literally for generations and for centuries. It's an experience that they would draw encouragement and confidence from. A situation that would inspire generations to come and strike fear into their enemies. It was proof positive that Yahweh is God above all gods and that he holds power beyond compare and imagination. He cannot absolutely under no circumstance be defeated and he fights for his people. He's able to liberate them from any trial, from any threat any catastrophe, and annihilate all of their enemies. And so the big idea this morning really is God gaining glory through liberating his people and by destroying the enemies of his people. God is. He says that he is I am. He is I am. Yeah, that's what he said. I didn't say it. He says I am. That's his name. He lives and he reigns. There's no one or no thing greater than our God. And Israel would have looked back on this story time after time after time again to remember that one simple point. If God is on our side, no one can defeat us. No one will ever defeat us. And we can hold that same promise for ourselves this afternoon. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we'll read. Our great and heavenly Father, our King, and our Lord, there is no one greater than you. You destroy all of our enemies. You go before us and you fight for us. God, we are grateful to be covered by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Grateful to be brought into your family, brought into your arms, wrapped up into your bosom, Father, only because your son has chosen to die for us. We pray, Father, that our lives will be filled with gratitude, overflowing with thanksgiving. And be ready to give you the glory that you deserve. You've made us and you've created us to reflect your image. Please, Father, let us do that to the best of our ability. We love you and thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 14. We're just going to go through parts of this chapter at a time this morning. I won't read the entire chapter all at once. So here in verses 1 through 9 it says then... Or let me just start in Exodus 13, 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. 
The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Hiharoth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians... All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Haharoth, opposite Baal Zephon. Again, the title is Liberated. In this verse here, God kind of reveals why he's doing what he's doing. He says, I'm doing it so that I will get glory. And for God, glory is a big thing. God is hedonistic in that regard. He, hedonism is to be overly um, indulgent in something. And God is hedonistic when it comes to his glory. He wants more and more and more of it. He wants every person and everything to glorify him. He wants all eyes, sorry about this, I got this tambourine over here. He wants all eyes to be on himself. He wants everyone and everything to worship him. Glory is praise. Glory is honor. It's worship. It's adoration. It's exaltation. It's magnification. It's adoration. It's the realization that God alone is God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. He's everything we could ever want, everything we could ever need. All eyes on him. God wanting glory is mentioned three times in chapter 14. We just read one. We'll read two more later on as we go. But God is bent on and intent on getting his glory. Why is that? Why does he want glory so much? It seems like, God, you're kind of like egotistical or something, you know? We have people that we know of in our lives. They're really... Um, proud of themselves, right, and think that they're awesome, think that they're great, maybe they only talk about themselves all the time, we tend to not like those people, right? God, in a sense, is the same way. 
But I think the difference is when we see our friends or family members who behave that way, we think, I hear you talking all about yourself, but you really ain't all that. <laughs> right? And that's kind of where the rub comes. You're talking this big talk, but you're really not as good as you say that you are. The difference with God is that he really is that good. If not, God might be even better than he says that he is. And so God deserves glory. Glory is rightfully his. God is in the right, and he's justified to demand glory from us. And so God pursues glory in liberating his people and destroying Pharaoh. Some would say that the chief end of man is to bring God glory. To bear the image and the likeness that he has given us, to worship him, to obey him, and to acknowledge him, and even to brag about him. But how does God go about gaining this glory? Point number one this morning is through Pharaoh's pride. God gains glory through Pharaoh's pride. After denying Moses a simple verbal request to let his people go. Do you realize that that's how it started? That it was just simply Moses and Aaron going up to Pharaoh and Moses said, Hey, why don't you let my people go so that we can go and worship? That's how it started. Pharaoh was supposed to say, Okay, you can go. But he didn't. Because he didn't do that, Aaron says, and uh, Moses, they have the staff, and they throw it on the ground, the staff becomes a snake, right? That miracle was supposed to impress Pharaoh. And he was supposed to say, okay, you can go. But he didn't. And then Moses says, well, all right, we got something for you. He pours out the, the water of the Nile, and it becomes blood. The entire Nile River becomes blood. That was supposed to impress Pharaoh. That was supposed to move his heart so that he would say, okay, I'll let the people go. But he didn't. And he goes on for plague after plague after plague. Ten miraculous plagues, each one progressively getting worse than the one before. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Hardened like a slab of granite. Anybody have granite countertops at home? Some of us have, I think we got the imitation granite at our house. But granite is hard, isn't it? Pharaoh's heart was like that. So God knows us about Pharaoh's heart, and God uses it, again, to get glory. The Bible says, uh, in verse 2, it says, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. Nobody really knows exactly where these cities were, but bottom line, what happened was, God, Israel is roaming around. They're not quite in the desert just yet. They're roaming around right on the edge of the desert, right on the outskirts of, of Pharaoh's territory. And Pharaoh has spies that are following these guys all around because it was, it was a lot just to get them to go. So Pharaoh wants to know, what are they doing? Spies are watching these guys, and the, the spies realize that they're, they're kind of in a, in, a, in a tough situation. They're bound by the Red Sea, and then two other cities. Kind of think of like a horseshoe, right? And Israel is jammed right up in the middle of the horseshoe with the Red Sea behind them. There was nowhere for them to go. And so the spies come back and they tell Pharaoh, hey, 
Not only has Israel gone off to go and worship their God, but we believe that they're trying to actually flee. Because remember, the initial deal was, let us go so we can worship. Not just let us go, period. But since they were on the outskirts, the spies are thinking these guys are actually trying to leave. So they go back and they tell Pharaoh. Not only that, they're trapped. And so Pharaoh sees an opportunity to not just go and get the people back, but to actually go and destroy them. Because this is how hard, how hard Pharaoh's heart was. You know, you cannot continually deny God's truth. Continually deny his love. Continue to reject his miracles and keep a soft heart. You can't do that. Our hearts grow hard. This is what happens when we live in sin, in deceit and in darkness. We warp our consciences. We laugh at wickedness. We tolerate evil. We run from righteousness. We get annoyed and frustrated at spiritual conversations and topics where uncomfortable with exposure and openness because our hearts are getting calloused, getting calcified and hardened. And so God hardens the heart, or in better terms, God allows for the hardening of the heart. What makes something hard? Think about concrete. Think about clay. Think about glue. Think about even iron when it's in liquid form, or glass when it's molten. What causes those things to get hard? Is it not the fact that we allow those things to settle? We allow those things to cool, right? As they settle, as they cool, as they're not stirred anymore, they're not worked with anymore. When they're left alone, what happens? They harden. And this is exactly what's going on with Pharaoh's heart. God isn't a malicious God. God didn't go to Pharaoh, oh, soft-hearted Pharaoh, he's carrying around little baby puppy in his palace, and he's really so loving, and he's so ready to let Israel go, but the mean God, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go, just so that I can destroy Pharaoh. No! That's not what happened. Pharaoh made his own choices. Pharaoh was already on the road. He was already heading that, in that direction. Right. When Moses came in and said, the Lord said, let my people go, what does Pharaoh say? He says, who is the Lord? And why should I obey him? Show me who this guy is. Pharaoh thought he was all that and a bag of chips. He wasn't listening to anybody. And so as Pharaoh goes along, more and more and more, and he continues to reject, he continues to deny, he continues to, to not look at, not pay attention to the miracles, the amazing miracles that God has placed in his life, his heart grows harder and harder, and then God hardens the heart or allows for the hardening of the heart. When you read in Exodus 7, read in Exodus 8, it begins with Pharaoh hardened his heart. When you go into Exodus 9, 10, and following, it says, God hardened his heart. God hardened his heart after Pharaoh had already begun to harden his own heart. He was already on the path, just like clay, just like dirt, just like glue, just like iron, already set up to be a certain way. But once you leave it alone, it gets hard. And so God says, you know what, Pharaoh, this is the way you're going to be. 
Okay. I'll leave you alone. And your heart will harden. Because of this hard heart, Pharaoh was blind to the miracles and the truth of God. He disregarded, he denied, he turned a blind eye to the Father, and he ran to his death. He made some bad decisions because of a hard heart. Pride is the utmost danger, spiritually speaking. C.S. Lewis says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this particular vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault that makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more conscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, junk drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Wow. C.S. Lewis. Can we fall victim to this? Absolutely we can. For sure, for those bent on evil, resistant to God's power and miracles, denying obvious truth, God will harden the heart and turn you over to your sin. Look at me, look with me in Romans chapter 1, really quick here in verse 18. And, and this is it just laid out for us. It says, Romans 1:18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So there's truth there, but we try to cover up the truth by being wicked. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, look what happens. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, 
They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So there it is right there. He's basically saying that when truth is right in front of you, two plus two equals four. But when you keep telling yourself and others, no, it actually equals five. He says what you do is sear and warp your conscience. You get twisted. You start to think wrong. Your thinking becomes futile. You can't connect the dots anymore. And God turns us over and lets us go our way. He hardens the heart. We've got to get humble if this is us. We've got to get help and we've got to get open. Bring your sin and your heart to the light. Acknowledge God and his power. Invite God to keep working with you. You guys say, God, please don't let me go. I know this is how I've been, but don't leave me alone so that I can harden. Keep stirring my pot. Keep massaging my clay. And I know it's challenging, right? Job wasn't Job the one that said, God, why are you so mindful of me? You know when stuff goes on in our lives, it's because God loves us. It's because he's paying attention to us. He's trying to bring Christ into our lives. Job felt that. And Job was like, Lord, I just feel so much love from you right now, right? We can't say, Lord, leave me alone. Don't do that. We want him to keep working in our lives. Amen? Amen? But God would use Pharaoh's pride to gain glory for himself. Pharaoh's pride would actually end up being the backdrop for God's victory. Point number two. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. God gains glory through Israel's faithlessness. He gains glory through Israel's faithlessness. 14.10, it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone! Let us serve the Egyptians! It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses, what have you done? Verse 8 says that they were marching out boldly. They were confident. You remember when Pharaoh says, get on out of here. Go. They take all the unleavened bread. They plunder the Egyptians. They got the gold earrings and the bracelets and, and everything else. And they're marching out. They're strutting right. And they're up there and they get into this little predicament that they're in. And all of a sudden they see the, the dust on the horizon. And they're like, uh-oh. That's Pharaoh's troops coming to get us. And they freeze, and they fall apart. The Bible says that they cried out to the Lord, but if their next words to Moses were any indication of their hearts, I don't think that their prayer was a righteous prayer to the Lord. I think that it was probably some whining, some moaning, some groaning, some complaining, some blame shifting onto the Father, right? And then they give Moses a tongue lashing. I love the sarcasm here. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here? 
There's none in Egypt, so let's go out to the desert to die. It's a really powerful like illusion, too, because uh, if, if there's any place on earth that has graves, it's Egypt. The pyramids were huge tombs for the pharaohs. They knew all about graves in Egypt. And so it's interesting they use this type of sarcasm. When they say, um, where is it? Um, what have you done? The Hebrew here. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? The Hebrew there is literally, what in the world? <laughs> Seriously. What in the world have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? And so apparently they had expressed this fear before. They said, didn't we say to you, leave us alone? The Bible doesn't record that, but that was probably one of their conversations. But Israel, too, had seen the miracles. Israel had seen the plagues. They knew how God had protected them, how God was able to discern and able to punish the Egyptians while at the same time allowing uh, the Israelites to have light or to not be infested by a boil or a plague or whatever it was. They saw that. And so even though God shows his power, uh, but I'm sorry, they saw that, but now they, they, they lack faith in God. And isn't that interesting how quickly we can shift? Have you ever, I mean, I know for me there's times that I literally I get a text message, boom, I read it, I'm like, woohoo, this is awesome, God is so incredible, he's amazing, he can do anything, boom, I get the next text, oh man, God, like, what are you doing, man, this is horrible. Have you ever done that before? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we can like this boom, boom, boom so quickly. How can Elijah beat the prophets of Baal in one minute and the next be on the run from Jezebel and depressed? How can the entire city of Nineveh repent at Jonah's preaching and in the next minute he's under a broom tree wishing he was dead? How can Peter walk on water in one minute and in the next he's drowning? Lord, save me! Our faith is so shaky. Here's the answer. It depends on where we look. It depends on where we set our sights. That will determine our faith. Where are our eyes looking? If we're looking at Problems. if we're looking at the, the, the dust on the horizon and we're thinking about Pharaoh and his army that's coming, guess what? We're going to lose faith. Like Peter, when he's looking at the wind and the waves, the problems, guess what? We lose faith. Whatever you focus on grows. So if you're looking at your problems, guess what? Your problems will only get bigger. You're only going to get more scared about the problems. I'm not saying just ignore the problem. I got a flat tire. No, I don't really got a flat tire. Let me just keep on driving down the highway. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you got a flat tire, focus on the solution. I got to pull over. I got to change the flat or call AAA or whatever I got to do, right? But if you just look at the problems, the problems will grow and our faith will be weakened. But if we look at God, and if we look at how great he is, then we will be filled with faith. Are you with me? Yes. 
a faithful person has God's presence and power in mind more than a faithless person. That's the only difference. One has God's power and presence in mind. He or she is thinking about that. He or she applies that to every situation. I got a flat tire. No big deal. God will fix it. Versus the faithless person. I got a flat tire. Oh no. This is going to cost me $60. The only difference is where our eyes are focused. That's it. And so if there's anything that you can do to put God's presence and power in mind, do it. If it's reading God's word, do it. If it's memorizing scripture, do it. If it's developing a stronger prayer habit, do that. Maybe it's a picture on your cell phone to remind you of how awesome God is. Do it. If it's an encouraging message that you keep on your voicemail, you keep pressing 9 every time you listen to it. Say, 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 whatever you got to do, do it. Maybe it's being around a friend who helps you to think about God and gives you a more faithful perspective. Hang around that friend. Yeah. Don't hang around the friend that keeps bringing you down. <laughs> Unless you're strong enough to bring them up, I guess. But anything to get our minds off of the problems and onto the Lord and what he's capable of doing. This will build our faith. What's amazing is that even though they were faithless, God still delivered them. Not because of their faith, but because of the promise that he had made to Abraham. We have a God that seeks glory. He's going to get his glory. And because of that, we can trust him to be faithful even when we're faithless. Even when we don't trust in him, he trusts in himself. He says, you know what? I got this. I made the promise. I'm going to keep the promise. Whether you're in the promise or not in the promise, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, even though you're not doing what you said what you were going to do. That's the kind of God we have. Lastly, Exodus 13. God gains glory through Moses' example of faith. Through Moses' example of faith. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses at this point is a changed man. Gone is the escapism and excuse making of chapters 3 through 6. Through the, the plague experience, Moses' eyes were far away from the Lord and they were on himself. They were on his weaknesses, on his flaws, on his imperfections. I'm slow of speech and tongue. They don't know who I am. I can't do this. Lord, please, just anybody besides me, right? That was Moses' outlook and perspective. But now he has a situation in perspective. And he's looking in the right place. He realizes the fight is not Pharaoh versus Moses. He realizes that it's Pharaoh versus the Lord. That's the fight. And Moses was a mere tool in God's hands. When Pharaoh is unmoved by one of the miraculous plagues, Moses is no longer self-focused. He doesn't go back to God and whine that Pharaoh didn't listen to him because he stammered over his words. No, Moses' attitude is, well, fine then. I'll just be back tomorrow with the next plague. <laughs> Completely different mindset and attitude. 
We see Moses' eyes in the right place when he tells Pharaoh about that last plague, and the Bible says that Moses left him hot with anger. This was the right kind of anger to have. Not anger toward God for putting him in this situation. God, what have you done? Pharaoh isn't listening to me. But it was a righteous indignation at the pride and the wickedness of Pharaoh. When are you going to learn? When are you going to get it? And so Moses had changed indeed. And with his faith in the Lord, Moses now stands for God and with God and tells Israel, one, do not be afraid. Do not fear. I know that Pharaoh's chariots are on the horizon and they're coming. But you know what? God has this situation. Where fear is, faith is not. He tells them to stand firm. Don't run for your lives. Don't turn yourselves in. Don't be intimidated by your enemies. Stare them in the face, knowing that God is going to take care of you. And Moses would later tell his understudy Joshua to be strong and what? Courageous. Courageous. Same thing. And so it doesn't matter what Satan or his demons are throwing your way. With God on your side, you never need to run in fear. Amen. We stand and we face our fears with God on our side. Mm. The third thing he tells them in the boastful style of Muhammad Ali, you know, Muhammad Ali used to say, you know, I'm going to take him out in four. I'm going to take him out in three, you know. Moses speaks his faith in the same way. He says, these Egyptians that you see today, you're never going to see him again. Never again will you see these guys. And they didn't. The fourth thing he told them was the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This would be a battle that the Lord himself would fight. Think about it. Israel, they've just come out of slavery. These guys aren't fit. These guys aren't trained. They aren't ready. They don't have weapons, you know? God fought for them. Israel needed to do nothing but stand back and be still. And so by doing that, Moses gets their eyes off of the problem and onto the Lord. And when he does that, they're able to move on. God will teach the same thing over and over again to Israel in different battles. Joshua versus Jericho. Gideon and his tiny army versus the Midianites. Hezekiah versus the Assyrians. It's the same thing over and over. God is the one who fights for his people. And so we have a God who does the fighting for us. We need only to trust him and do what he says. Verse 15 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? He's not talking only specifically to Moses, but he's talking in general to the people. Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so God gained glory through Moses' example of faith. Because Moses was faithful, Israel's eyes turned from the problem of the advancing Egyptian army. And their eyes now turned on to God. And when God tells them, hey, listen, stop crying out. This ain't the time to be praying. People are coming. Y'all need to start moving out. Right? Because there is a time to pray and there's a time to get up and do something. Right? That's what God is telling them. Now's the time to do something. 
They were no longer focused on their fears. They were focused on the Lord, and they began to move on. The question is, where were they supposed to move on to? The only place they had to go was to start marching toward the sea. And that's what they did. They didn't know how they were going to be delivered. God hadn't told that to Moses yet. All he knows is God just told us we need to move on. Let's start marching. But Moses, there's a whole bunch of water over there. I don't care. We're going to start marching in faith. The Lord is going to take care of us. Amen? And they start marching. Verse 19, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, between 2 and 6 in the morning, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Did God get his glory? He got him some glory. He ain't playing. He got him some glory. So through Moses, God opens up a way out of no way. The sea miraculously parts, and all, imagine now, two million people. Imagine the entire population of Hampton Roads, from Williamsburg to Nags Head, from Suffolk to the shore, all marching through the Red Sea. The population of Hampton Roads is roughly 1.8 million people. That's about how many people Israel was at the time. And they go through on dry ground. They didn't even have to worry about their Jordans getting muddy. They didn't have to think about that. Dry ground. You know, as powerfully as these verses speak about God's people being liberated and their deliverance, these verses speak just as much, if not more powerfully, about the destruction of God's enemies. Remember, Israel has already been freed. Pharaoh's already said, you can go. 
They've already set up not one but two holidays to commemorate it. But think about how did the situation come up in the first place? Remember, God set it up knowing that Pharaoh's hardened heart would lead him to this place and eventually he would get trapped in the sea. And God did it so that he would gain glory. It wasn't only to set his people free. They were already free. He did it to destroy his enemies. And so as Pharaoh and his army foolishly pursue Israel into the sea, the chariot wheels begin to break. The army gets stuck. Once Israel is finally crossed, God uses Mo Moses and his staff to return the sea back to its original place. Pharaoh and his army are swallowed up by the sea. Their dead bodies begin to wash up on the shore. This is how Israel gets their weapons, by the way, because the weapons begin to wash up as well, and Israel pilfers the weapons. But like Israel, blood from a lamb has set us free. Jesus is that lamb. And while we may still be in this world, we are as free as free can be. But our enemy, the devil, and his army persists. He's enraged, and he's fighting to get us back. He wants to enslave us again to try to show God who's more powerful. And his pride and his hardened heart blinds him into thinking that he can win. But he doesn't have a chance, because God wants glory. And in the end, God will use that pride to destroy our enemy for good. You'll never see him again. In Revelation 20, it says, Then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So today, brothers and sisters, let's not fear, but stand firm in the face of trials. He wants glory. Let's give glory to the God who fights for us. Amen. Let's fear him and put our trust in him. Because just like with Israel, the Lord has the ability to use the very circumstances that hem us in to deliver us and to destroy and defeat our enemies. Amen. If you're not a Christian this morning, Believe it or not, God wants to use you to gain glory too. That's why he made you, to bear his image. And what better advertisement is there for God than a changed life? You heard the truth of God's nature and the power and his love this afternoon. I encourage you, don't harden your heart by dismissing the truth and walking away as if you did not hear what you just heard. Give God his glory. Make a decision today to sit down and open the Bible with someone. Let God liberate you. Let God gain glory through your life, through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.